Shalom, and welcome to Inside Israel News. I'm your host, Isaac Kite. In this podcast, you'll hear detailed and relatively unbiased information about Israeli politics and current events. Well, it's been yet another exciting week in news for Israel and the Middle East. I've recorded a number of supplements to talk about the uh, Arab-Israeli peace agreements, the Abraham Accords, also talking about the structure of the Israeli government, and describing the three previous elections that set up the election that Israel is facing right now, which is the big major point in the news. <clears throat> so with that, I'll go on and talk about the, the news that we've had this week, and then I'll talk a little bit about the setup of this election before completing my discussion of the political parties in Israel <clears throat> by describing the Labor Party and its history. Iran continues to dominate the news. The Biden administration is continuing to say that they are going to re-enter negotiations with Iran toward the Obama-era Iran nuclear deal. And Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu has warned everyone that that is basically going to allow Iran to develop a nuclear weapon. The IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, has said they have found evidence of uranium and radiation at sites that they were not allowed to inspect. So once again, we have evidence that Iran wasn't following the deal to begin with. Uh, they are not allowing inspectors to come in and... Uh, even now, they're trying to find a way to get sanctions lifted as a precondition to negotiations. Uh, the Obama administration is talking about it, but uh, it's not looking too good. And, of course, Netanyahu is already warning everyone that a return to that deal would be very bad for the Middle East. Uh, the development of nuclear weapons by Iran would pose a significant threat. This should strengthen the Abrahamic Accords, the, the Abrahamic alliance between Israel and its new Arab allies, because, of course, they want to protect themselves from Iran, who is the natural mortal enemy of Israel, uh, as well as the Arab states. The Palestinians claim that the Israel has reached an agreement to vaccinate some 100,000 Palestinian workers, but Israel says that it has not. In other interesting news affecting the Palestinians, there's a leadership contest going on in Hamas as uh, one of their former leaders, Mashal, is attempting to make a comeback, trying to regain leadership of Hamas. And uh, Mahmoud Abbas's uh, competitors, one of his main rivals in the Fatah movement, this is the, the group that controls the, the Palestinian Authority presidency and controls uh, the Shomron and Yehuda. Uh, Samaria and Judah, the, what the international community, international press calls the West Bank, uh, that uh, his, his main rival, uh, Mohammed Dalan, is sending a large number of vaccines to the Gaza Strip, trying to earn some political credit there against his opponent and rival, President Mahmoud Abbas. As Israel continues to vaccinate its population in great numbers, they've created a new uh, green passport plan that will allow vaccinated people to travel more freely and thus offer uh, an end to virus lockdowns and restrictions. And as discussed in the last episode, hopefully they will be able to allow more commerce and allow people to get back to life more 
as normal uh, for people. Now, Israel is a small country, so when it comes to travel, Israelis uh, get around. They, they like to fly to Spain. They like to fly to Greece, to Cyprus, to visit other Mediterranean sites since uh, travel to the Arab world, except uh, Bahrain and the UAE now has been restricted. Uh, for the most part, travel is to European countries and uh, Turkey and Cyprus and Greece and this sort of thing. Well, Israelis are feeling especially boxed in and claustrophobic now, having had to stay home, not being able to travel. So there is great optimism that the new passport program will allow people to travel again and start to enjoy life a little bit uh, after all of these lockdowns over the uh, COVID-19 crisis. Now, having completed the supplements and offered a, a greater background on the Israeli political situation that led up to this point, and shortly I'll be talking about the Labor Party and the history of Israel's traditional left, kind of concluding the discussion of political parties in Israel and also uh, concluding the, the discussion of the parties as they stand, where they come from, and that sort of thing. I want to take just a minute to discuss the setup of this election, where things are now. Again, uh, if you haven't checked out the supplements and, and got caught up on how the last three elections have gone, this will be a little bit different. But uh, go ahead and, and get uh, the background and then you'll you'll have a, a better sense of what I'm talking about. So Bibi Netanyahu is trying to hold on to power. He wants to stay in office. He wants a French law uh, to protect him from culpability, that is, uh, criminal liability for uh, acts he may have conducted as prime minister to prevent himself from being prosecuted for most of the crimes that are, are currently pending against him. And uh, there is a strong political opposition that wants to see Bibi Netanyahu gone. Since July of 2019, Bibi Netanyahu has been Israel's longest serving prime minister, having stayed longer than uh, Ben-Gurion, David Ben-Gurion, the founder, founding prime minister of Israel. So this is the situation that Israel is in. Does Bibi stay or does Bibi go? And uh, as I mentioned, the, the word on the street is uh, there's a growing sense that Bibi is going to survive the current political crisis and find a way to continue to be in government. Well, this is the, this is the setup for this March 23rd election that's forthcoming here. And as we've seen from the polls, Bibi is looking pretty good. Uh, his competitors are far behind him, but... His natural allies are still below the the threshold, the majority, 61 seats, needed to form a government. So it's going to be a complicated situation, even if a government results from this election. And there is that possibility out there that there could be even a fifth election uh, later this year if somehow this election does not produce a result. So we've talked about how Israel got here. This is the state that things are in now. How is this going to work out? How is this going to play out? What, uh, what a crazy set of events for a country that had never had to do two elections in a year. Uh, they've had elections close together, uh, a year apart, two years apart, but never, never like this, never four elections in two years. <clears throat> so what is Israel going to do? How are Israelis handling this? There's a lot of frustration with the system. There, the people who are anti-Bibi have really, you know, thrown their hands up in the air and just, oh, you know, how do we... You know, can you believe this? This is this is Meshuga. This is crazy. This is insane. How can Bibi try to stay in office? He's under charges. He's he's bad. He's been there forever. It's time for him to go. And likewise, on the other side, 
Those who are pro-BB are saying, look, these charges are politically motivated. They just want to get him out of office. If he steps down from office, he'll never be able to return to office. So he can't just go face the charges and then come back. And uh, there's this is just political assassination. And we need this experienced leader to go on and, and serve in government. So I wanted to to having discussed that, having brought it to that point, to mention a couple of my own biases as I go forward here. Uh, as I've mentioned before, I'm not a great fan of the special privileges that the Haredi parties, the ultra-Orthodox parties, have earned for themselves and for Israel's ultra-Orthodox population. There, that and a large number of other social issues in Israel are fairly stagnant because they can't really be addressed under the current government. As long as the, the Shas or UTJ parties are part of the coalition, they prevent the government from addressing the social issues. Among these are the unfair distribution of social benefits to benefit the Haredi through various means, as I've discussed in previous episodes, uh, to the, you know, very much to the, to the disenfranchisement or, or to the, the financial uh, harm of Israel's secular population. So if you're a secular family that is poor and uh, struggles to pay the bills, you're going to struggle even harder to uh, survive than an ultra-Orthodox party who have a lot more kids and who have special uh, government pensions and uh, social programs that pay just for their upkeep, you know, pay for them to go to school, uh, the men to go to school and uh, give extra benefits for having multiple children uh, over, you know, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten children. And your, your benefits rise rapidly as you gain children. Uh, whereas a, a fairer or more even distribution of social benefits, let's say a standard flat rate per child allotment for those who receive social benefits, would be something that more Israelis could tolerate. The secular population pays a large amount of taxes that go to support the social programs, and the ultra-Orthodox Haredi and also the Arabs consume a large amount of that, uh, disproportionate amount of that social uh, benefit. And there's a great feeling that if the ultra-Orthodox, the Haredi, were willing to teach math and science and participate in the economy and maybe serve in the military, although, as I've discussed, there could be a compromise there to allow them to be exempt from military service if they'll at least work. Anyway, th this is the problem that's there. That's one of my biases. And that's something that is a bias that very much works against Bibi Netanyahu. One of my major axes to grind personally against Bibi Netanyahu is his loyalty to the ultra-Orthodox parties. It's not anything personal, I guess you could say. Um, at the end of the day, these are his political allies. He needs their votes in order to stay in office. And so he has remained loyal to them, and thus they remain very loyal to him. But again, to the detriment of secular Israeli population and taxpayers and the economy and so many other problems. And of course, as the ultra-Orthodox grow as a percentage of Israel's population, because they tend to have so many children, they're very prolific in their reproduction. Uh, uh, let's go back to the Mel Brooks joke. Are they Jews or are they rabbits? Uh, there's a, a fast-growing population of ultra-Orthodox people who don't want to work in the economy or serve in the military, what have you. This is a challenge. Uh, Bibi is also not a great reformer in, in various other social problems in Israel. And while he leans toward the, the free market, which, again, my bias, I support free market policies, uh, that is something I favor about him. I like that he is an elder statesman and he's experienced. He's also very opportunistic. Uh, his leadership style is somewhat narcissistic. Uh, again, very much about him. 
Uh, everyone in the party has to support his agenda and support his approach to politics. He doesn't tolerate dissent. He doesn't allow people to argue with him. And he's driven off a lot of great talent from Likud. So this is part of the, the challenge there. I have been a reluctant supporter of Netanyahu because the Kadima government under Ehud Olmert was not very competent. And after the rocket attacks in 2006, the corruption, the problems under Ehud Olmert's government, uh, Bibi Netanyahu coming to office, a lot of, of people on the, the center right and a lot of people who support Israel in America have kind of held our noses and like, well, Bibi's not the best, but he's, he's a good leader to, to hold things down now. He has certainly maintained Israel's security. He has provided a, a very prosperous economy for the country, and he's been very successful. Uh, his knee-jerk free market reforms are uh, when, when, for example, there was a housing crisis and everyone was upset. Uh, housing is getting so much more expensive because of foreign investors or what have you. Bibi eliminated a lot of red tape for development, and there's a massive increase in the housing supply, which, of course, brought down prices a little bit and made them more manageable. Rather than going to the old traditional left's knee-jerk reaction of, oh, let's, let's fix prices and uh, create more subsidies for housing, right? So Bibi Netanyahu has been in, in, on the right on a lot of those things, um, not not at all on the right, uh, not at all correct, I would say, about the Haredi ultra-Orthodox problem. And there are a lot of other social issues that uh, Israelis would like to be able to address. The security situation has prevented Israel from dealing with social integration of uh, the uh, Haredi into the mainstream of, of Israeli society, the Russian population. And there's a lot of these other problems that are, that are hanging out there. And because everyone's been focused on, you know, war and peace and big issues like that, these have, have been undercurrents in Israeli politics that have not been addressed. I think uh, Yair Lapid and the center left would be better for addressing those kinds of issues, me personally. But at the same time, they don't want Bibi Netanyahu anywhere near the prime minister's office and are not willing to cooperate with him. So their unwillingness to cooperate drives Israeli government farther to the right, as they have since 2015, uh, and that's not necessarily good for Israeli politics. When Bibi Netanyahu leaves, whenever it is he decides to retire, resign, or if he's thrown out, uh, the next generation will probably be able to find ways to address these issues uh, and move on from it. But then there's this big question about, again, international politics, who better than Bibi Netanyahu to deal with an American administration that is weak on Iran and weak on, on Middle East policy and that's getting America you know, back into wars that Donald Trump had ended, the previous president, in Iraq, Afghanistan, what have you, getting America's nose back into the Middle East's business rather than the Trump approach of pulling back and letting America's allies in the region handle the situation. Uh, and with the, the talk of returning to the Obama-era Iran deal, isn't this a better time for Bibi Netanyahu to be in office and perhaps after, you know, two or three years, then he could retire and leave the office to someone else? There are many arguments to go either way. And as I talk to you, I try not to be uh, too biased. And again, I want to claim my biases so that all of my listeners know where I'm coming from and what approach I take to this. I wouldn't mind seeing BB stay on during this time and, and address these crises. And I can see that argument that he's the elder statesman. On the other hand, he's been there for a very long time. He is stagnating the Israeli political system. And it really is time for a new generation of leaders to take over. But is that leader Gidon Sa'ar? Is it Benny Gantz? Is it Yair Lapid? The Israeli voters don't seem to have the same confidence in them that they have in Bibi Netanyahu. 
At the end of the day, me personally, uh, I'm a big believer in democracy and letting the people have what they voted for, what they really voted for. And in this case, Bibi remains popular. And there's a large number of people who want him to stay in office. And so he shouldn't just be thrown out because a handful of people or a minority of people do not want him in office. On the other hand, that staunch minority of people who want him out of office are pretty solid in their beliefs. So again, we'll see how things play out after this election. Polls show things are pretty close. There could be a fifth election. Personally, my own hope is that some government will result from this, whether it's led by Bibi or not. And uh, will Israel will, will not have to go to a fifth election in four years. And uh, that's just going to be a lot, of, a lot of chaos and a lot of crisis for everyone. And this is showing the weakness, honestly, of the, of the multi-party proportional system. Anyway, when we look at the center-left, we have Yair Lapid's Yeshatid, There is a Future, party. We have uh, Kaholavan, we have uh, Blue and White, which is uh, Benny Gantz's party. And then from there, we have the traditional left. Now, before the election was uh, official, before it was uh, the deadline was reached and we were certain who was running, who would be contesting the elections and who was not, there was all this talk of, say, uh, Tel Aviv Mayor Ron Holdai running with a new party called Israelis and a couple of others. But uh, it seems that uh, Marav Michaeli's win as leader of labor has rehabilitated labor a little bit, and they're running in the six, seven seat range. Uh, the Labor Party is the traditional left in Israel, and they're the party that has uh, been the traditional leader in Israel, certainly was until the, the mid-70s. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the history of the left. I, I, when I talked about the Likud party and its history, I, I went at length about Israeli history. So I'm going to, you can go back and, and follow that because that gives you a little bit more detail about what happened. But I'm going to talk about uh, very vaguely the, the early years of the Israeli left because it's more relevant to the election today, what's happened in recent years. But essentially, when David Ben-Gurion founded Israel, Israel was founded as a socialist country. Uh, it was uh, celebrated by the Soviet Union initially because uh, the Soviet Union thought that it would be uh, a socialist experiment or a good uh, socialist country, although uh, it wasn't too long after that that Stalin turned on the Jews in his own country, and therefore, obviously, Israel was quickly on the outs with uh, the USSR. Uh, Israel was never friendly toward or an ally of the USSR. It was just that the Soviets uh, celebrated Israel as a socialist state, a socialist experiment, we might say. Uh, so-called democratic socialism. And as I've discussed, I mean, if anyone could make democratic socialism work, certainly the Jews in Israel could, uh, having the, the kibbutz system and, and a good sense of communal agricultural community. Uh, Israelis gave it the best go they could. Uh, the early years of Israeli uh, political history were dominated by David Ben-Gurion and the traditional, what, what is now called the Labor Party. And this is, this is the socialist or, as you might say, social democratic left, as, as we might talk about in uh, terms of international politics. Most of the left-wing parties are either called labor or the social democrats, but they're essentially a moderate socialist party that is a democratic socialist. So that's the party that founded Israel. And initially, as is often the case when you have uh, socialist policies implemented in a country, there's a, a short-term uh, boost in productivity. And so through the 1950s and the early 60s, Israel had this incredible surge in agricultural productivity and industrial productivity. 
very similar to uh, other socialist experiments. Early on, you get this, this rise in productivity and everything, everything seems to be going. But then you, the economy stagnates, uh, money ceases to have value, there's no uh, profit to be earned in any kind of production, and after a while, the value proposition collapses and nothing has value, and you start seeing inflation rates of 400%. Uh, you can look at the history of Zimbabwe and Venezuela to see more recent examples, but this happened in Israel, just as it's happened in other countries. And so by the mid-60s, Israel was suffering major economic problems. But the left also had the security situation to deal with. And Israelis are pretty tough, and, and they're very cohesive as a society. So everyone kind of toughed it out together that they had to win the wars and, and secure their uh, borders and, and make sure that Israel was safe and at peace before they could address a lot of the internal issues. So this this generation and even the one that followed it would kind of set aside domestic disputes and, and kick the can down the road, let's just say, on economic issues and what have you, because we had to win the wars. Uh, that had to come first. And, and military concerns were uh, primary, fairly obvious. Uh, obviously, in 1967, Israel was about to be attacked by its neighbors, by uh, Egypt, Jordan, and Syria. And uh, Israel launched the preemptive strike to prevent that. And the Six-Day War ensued, in which Israel won the, uh, the war. They conquered the Sinai and drove Egypt across the Suez Canal. They took the, uh, what the international community calls the West Bank. They, they liberated the Shamron, Yehuda, and Jerusalem from Jordan. And then uh, with the, the famous decision by uh, Yitzhak Rabin then to send paratroopers into Jerusalem. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant strategy. So that was, uh, that was there. And then, of course, taking the Golan in Syria. Well, that secured Israel's uh, military situation. The 73 war, however, uh, was not as much a success as the Six-Day War. Uh, oh, I, I'll pause just here as a quick aside, because somebody did ask, I had a direct message asking, what is the song at the end of my podcast? That song is called uh, Mahar. Mahar means tomorrow in Hebrew, and it's a beautiful little ditty that uh, arose out of the Six-Day War. Uh, Israelis saw themselves very much as the underdogs, uh, the popular underdogs, and their, um, their the song sort of expresses the elation of winning the Six-Day War. You know, tomorrow everything will be at peace. Tomorrow the warships will be filled with fruit. It's just all this beautiful language basically about beating swords into plowshares and, and living in peace. And it, it expresses the hope of, uh, of a, I want to say, almost a naive idealistic hope that there would be peace forthcoming because they had won on such a grand scale. It's a beautiful song. I encourage you to look it up and, and read a, a translation of it very poetic, uh, and uh, I, I've always liked it as one of my favorite Israeli patriotic songs because of the, the mood that it expresses, the, the underdogs, and very, very uh, David and Goliath kind of thing. You know, here uh, David has the, the five smooth stones, and he hits uh, Goliath, or Goliath, if you will, in, in the head, and he defeats him, the giant, you know, the, the underdog defeats the, the bully, and it, it's it's very powerful and, and moving song, so... That. By the 1973 war, uh, the Yom Kippur War, where Golda Meir was in office as prime minister, again from the left, there was a sense that the left was not handling the security situation as well. The war was very much a fiasco. Again, this combined with economic problems. There were embargoes. It was difficult to get food. There was inflation every year, huge, massive inflation. 
And uh, there's a joke that uh, that time was defined in the lives of many Israelis by, uh, as they'll as they'll joke about the the one squash that made you know five meals that somehow mom would make five meals out of one vegetable right because the food was so scarce and it was such a, a tough time for a lot of people so those those weren't necessarily good times and that's when the right came together and formed Likud and so uh, from the 1977 election where Likud took uh, the majority and, and led the government from there forward, Labor has had to compete with a second party, let's just say, uh, as to who's going to lead. And uh, early on, uh, Likud would lead until uh, about 1984. And it was in 1984 that Israel had its hung parliament. And I discussed that in the history of Likud. There was the, the back the back channel of Ariel Sharon working behind the scenes to bring Shimon Perez of Labor together with Yitzhak Shamir of Likud, and they were able to form a unity government between the far-right and far-left, center-left, center-right parties, the, the major parties. That's called a unity government. And that uh, led to the rotation in office, Shimon Perez followed by Yitzhak Shamir. In 1988, Likud won again, sending uh, Labor back into uh, the opposition. And Yitzhak Rabin came back to lead the party and brought it into the 1992 elections with a little bit more hope. Uh, unemployment was high. The economy was still struggling. The compromises of 1984 that brought more free market reforms, especially to the finance industry and the reissuing of the Israeli currency, had helped a great deal. But Israel was still struggling with a lot of the economic impact. So that's when... Uh, Yitzhak Rabin was able to come to office, and there was this great hope of peace, the Oslo Accords and, and talking about peace with the Palestinians. Unfortunately, some people on the far right did not appreciate that as much, and Yitzhak Rabin was assassinated by a rightist, and his death brought Shimon Peres back as prime minister, and in the 1996 election, ultimately Bibi Netanyahu and Likud would come back to office. Ehud Barak's leadership of labor in uh, 1999 allowed him to come back to office after Bibi Netanyahu's scandal, and Labor was in office briefly. For It was the last two years of Labor government. Barack attempted to make peace with the Palestinians, uh, negotiating with the Clinton administration, also tried to make peace with Syria. None of those negotiations uh, came through. The second intifada was launched, and ultimately the ultra-Orthodox Shas party left the coalition, brought down his government, and Ariel Sharon would win the election to become prime minister. And that's how uh, Ariel Sharon ended up coming to office. Well, that was Labour's last opportunity to serve as the head of a government. Since then, they've joined a number of coalitions, working closely with Ariel Sharon, working with Ehud Olmert's government. They've joined coalition with Bibi Netanyahu a couple of times at different points in order to uh, advance certain policies here and there. But generally speaking, Labour has been in the opposition since then, and their numbers have been declining. A party that used to have regularly uh, 20 to 25 seats in the Knesset fell below that. They started polling around 15 seats, 14 seats. Now, as you can tell, Labour's down at six or seven. So that's where Labour stands. So a bit of a lengthy history, and I tried to keep that a little shorter than uh, than when I went into into depth, great depth with Likud. But that's the history of the Labour Party.
Uh, the Labour Party has been, uh, there have been several people like Shelly Yakimovich who tried to bring it back, uh, re-envision Labour, a new left for a new era. It just hasn't worked. Uh, Merev Mikhaili has managed to keep the party from dying completely, say being replaced by Ron Holdai's party or some other political party. But Labour is still in, uh, in the doghouse, let's just say, with voters. Uh, it doesn't really represent the new generation of voters. Most of your uh, new generation are interested in innovation, capitalism, the free market, prosperity, and that sort of thing. And they look to people like Yair Lapid as leaders, not to the old left, their, their grandparents and great-grandparents' political party. So the left is, uh, the Labour Party is going to have to reinvent itself and, and reimagine its, uh, its policies if it wants to be relevant in politics again. But uh, essentially, again, Ariel Sharon's uh, creation of a center-left niche politically really destroyed Labour and, and brought Labour to its heels. Well, that's Labour. Uh, I've talked a little bit about Meretz. Meretz is mostly a, a dovish protest party on the left. Uh, they are they are the far left party and and peace at any cost or any price has been their their policy. I'm not going to go into much depth there. Uh, again, there if you're if you're on the Israeli left and and you believe in in making peace again at any price and are dovish, well, that's that's the party you could vote for. That's that's Meretz. So that's the Israeli left. Now we have talked about all of the political parties and I've introduced you to. Uh, the center-left now, and, and you have a sense of who they are and what they represent. So we'll be going forward with polls and uh, more information going forward in the election process. I'll be coming soon with a couple of supplements now where I'll talk about the Avraham Accords and also about the uh, structure of the Israeli government. I had a lot of requests for uh, you know, those those two bits of background for the election as we, as we go for them. I want to stay focused on the election and election news, but I'll cover those things so we have a sense of, uh, we'll, have, we'll have discussed the background of where Israel is in terms of peace with its neighbors and also uh, how does this election system in Israel work at all. And there'll be a lot of technical terms in that, but I'll try to keep it simple. For more articles, news, and background, go to InsideIsrael.News or find our Facebook page, Inside Israel News, and like the page to stay up to date with current and forthcoming episodes and supplements. With that, I will say, Lahitrot, goodbye. <laughs> Kol zeh no mashal velo, halom zeh nachon, ka'ol batzor oroi.